0: Good morning, please open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2, Malachi chapter 2, this morning we'll be considering verse 17 through chapter 3 verse 6, so let's stand together as we're finding our place there and we'll read that passage and then we'll pray and ask the Lord to help us to understand and appreciate and apply it rightly. Malachi 2, beginning in verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied Him? By saying... Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed." Father, we thank you for your word. We have come to believe it by your grace. Your Holy Spirit has convinced us of its truth. And we pray that he would minister to us further this morning by helping us to understand it and to apply it rightly. We recognize, Father, that when we open this book, we are not able by ourselves to, to handle it appropriately to see our own hearts rightly and so we come to you as needy people and we ask you for help and we are so grateful lord that we are able to do that with great confidence because your son has bought us the right to do so so we come to you as children to a father asking for help. We look forward to receiving it from your Spirit. Again, we pray for these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, our brother. Amen. Please be seated. I want to begin this morning by reading just a few select verses from Psalm 73. From Psalm 73. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind, they scoff and speak with malice, loftily they threaten oppression, they set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Many of us can identify with those words from Psalm 73. We have a great sensitivity to injustice in the various spheres of the world around us. Whether that's in the political world, to which some of us may be keenly attuned these days. Some of us wondering how can this particular political party be getting away with this and that others of us thinking how can the opposite political party be getting away with this and that others of us may be so consumed with personal injustices that that is of no concern to us at all these political things we're thinking in personal personal space the the, the wicked around me are prospering and i the faithful am not and we may even wonder where is god In these situations. I have this marriage that's in bad shape. And I'm doing everything that the Bible says to do. But God isn't helping me with it. My spouse isn't turning around. Or maybe I I have this child who doesn't see the truth. Will not repent and follow Christ. I've spent hours upon hours praying to the Lord. Till my knees are sore. Believing everything that the Bible says about persistent prayer, but God hasn't done anything. Other people, all their children, all their children following the Lord. Why isn't God doing this one thing for me? Or that person who hurt me so badly, everything he touches turns to gold while my life is ruined. God is supposed to be about looking out for the weak. I'm wondering how that can be the case because in my situation it certainly doesn't seem so. Because we're created in the image of God, we have an innate desire for justice. And yet at times our fallenness perverts that desire so that it is focused only on the evil committed by others. So We, we want justice for ourselves and not against ourselves. Our fallenness can pervert that desire for justice even further to the extent that when we perceive that we're not receiving justice, we can even turn against God. It's a very subtle thing. It happens very slowly in our hearts. If we're not careful, we can find ourselves, even in a place like Providence, singing songs very loudly on Sunday mornings, listening intently to sermons and serving in ministries while thinking things like, where is... Your justice, God. Where's the help that I need? Why aren't you doing anything for me? <coughs> the people of Judah to whom Malachi was written, it seems, thought that they were being treated unfairly by God. And it is astounding, while not unusual for them. Even right after they were rescued from Egypt, they were miffed at God for denying them the right foods throughout this prophet we find this incongruity of the people bringing sacrifices to the Lord these outward forms of worship while questioning him, saying and thinking wrong things about him they they offer him worship while doubting his love they offer him worship while doubting his worthiness offer him worship while doubting his holiness and now we find them offering him worship while doubting his justice it seems that in their minds they are the only ones holding up their end of the bargain god we've we've built you this temple and we've even built a wall around your city and We're offering you these sacrifices, and it all appears to be for naught because all of the evil people around us, they're prospering while we are not. See, the people, they're continuing to plunk their worship coins into the vending machine, which is their conception of God, but he's not spitting out justice. God is denying them justice. And they actually were right. God had denied them justice, but not in the sense that they thought. They should still be slaves in Persia. Instead, they were living in a city protected by a wall that God moved the Persians to pay for. And they were offering their tainted, insulting offerings to God in a temple that God moved the Persians to finance. They should still be slaves under his wrath. They should still be suffering his justice, but instead... They're enjoying His grace. In a sense, yes, God had denied them justice. But their attitude toward Him is just shameless. And we should take time this morning to consider our attitude toward the Lord and what the gospel would have to say to us about such things. Are there pockets of our hearts that mirror that of the people of Judah? And how would the gospel serve as a corrective influence? In those places. Look with me again. Beginning at verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say. How have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking. Where is the God of justice? Now. I have I've I have five children and my kids have heard this phrase probably a million times you are wearing me out one of my sons was in the first service and he was nodding so hard I thought he was going to pass out they I mean they they've heard that now it does not mean that they're literally making me tired or they're 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 tearing my body down it, it just means exactly what you would think it means means I don't like what you're doing right now. And in a similar way, God when God says here, you have wearied the Lord with your words, he, God cannot be literally wearied. He is saying to them that he doesn't like what they're saying. You're wearing me out with these things that you're saying. And they, they can't understand why. Again, they think that the only one not fulfilling obligations is God. that is, that is exactly what He doesn't like. How have we wearied him, they ask. And, and he replies by saying that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. And by asking, where is the God of justice? Both of those, que- both of those sentences accomplish the same thing. The latter literally questions the justice of God. The former accuses him of being unjust. It says, God delights in evil doers." we might think, well, what would make these people think this of God? Well, some of us have thought these things of God. I mean, isn't it the case that sometimes evil people prosper in a worldly sense? I mean, Psalm 73 that I began with this morning, it actually brings this very thing up and struggles with it in a very honest way. I mean, the people were not prospering as were some of the other nations around them. And they wondered, why serve Him if He's going to deny us justice? Now, that is short-sighted for at least two reasons. First of all, that God had not brought justice to the nations around them didn't mean that He had denied them justice. just meant that He hadn't brought it yet. But second and most importantly, the people of Judah, of all nations, should be aware of God's great patience, and they should actually celebrate it. But it appears that they have forgotten God's great patience. They've forgotten that they themselves deserve God's justice They deserve to still be slaves in that foreign land. They deserve to die and go to hell for all eternity. They deserve God's justice while complaining that God isn't bringing justice. Now think about that for a moment as it relates to yourself. They are questioning God's justice while enjoying His patience. And think about the fact that they're doing that while offering the pretense of of worship have any of us ever done that i'm going to guess that probably most of us have maybe some this morning what would we call that i would suggest that we call it shameless to to worship god while questioning his justice is shameless that's the first point in your in your notes lord i've i've done this you're not doing this in, in return. Lord, I've done that and you're not coming through for me over here. Lord, I've been faithful in this and this and this, but you're just leaving me hanging on this big thing. God, you owe me. You're, you're not doing the right thing. You're denying me justice. Now, we we may not consciously direct those thoughts toward the Lord. We may direct them at circumstances or or at the injustices themselves by saying things like, man, the world just isn't fair, or this stinks, or why is this happening? But the Lord receives all of those things as directed against him. How do we know that? Think about the, the the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt and they were doing all of that grumbling against Moses. How did the Lord hear that? He held them accountable for grumbling against him. They were saying to Moses, why did you do this? And you're such a terrible guy, Moses. The Lord punished them for grumbling against Him. All complaining is complaining against God. And oftentimes we hold that disposition towards, towards Him while engaging in outward acts of service and worship as if we're putting Him further into our debt. And we should understand that to be shameless. It's shameless because not a single one of us deserve to even be breathing right now. The only thing that God owes to man is wrath. Now, let me let me offer a little bit of a caveat. There is a difference between asking questions of God and questioning God. So there, are, there are places like Psalm 73, obviously, that I've read from earlier this morning. There's the prophet Habakkuk where people wrestle with these difficult questions. They see or they perceive what looks like injustice on God's part and they, and they question that. But they land in a place of faith, as we're going to see. We're going to see later. That's a far cry from what we see in the people of Judah here, which is bringing brazen accusations against God. God can handle our questions. He's insulted by our accusations, like, "Where's the God of justice?" And everyone who does evil apparently is good to God. How insulting is that to a God of searing holiness? It is shameless to accuse God of denying the very justice that we deserve while bringing Him outward forms of worship. I mean, that seemed to put the lie to our worship. Now, this prophecy does does an interesting thing at this point. It shows us how the gospel can transform our worship. The prophet first shows that God's justice is coming. That's the the next point in your notes. God's justice is coming. Verse 1 in chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Matthew, Mark, Luke... In places, quoting Jesus, say this messenger is, the, is John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Lord Jesus. In, in ancient days, kings would send ahead of themselves a servant to move the traffic on the road to one side of the other, one side or the other, so that the royal entourage could travel unimpeded. And that's the idea here. John was sent ahead of Jesus to prepare the way, preaching a, meth- a message of repentance. Preparing people to receive this coming Savior King. Now that, that the messenger was coming indicates that the King himself is coming soon. He's coming suddenly, the text says. So the, the Lord is, is saying, look, you're questioning justice. Don't worry, justice is on its way. And all of us should be assured this morning, justice is coming for everyone. It is absolutely coming for everyone but it's not going to come exactly in the way that everyone expects. We, we understand this more clearly because of the revelation that we have in Christ, which the original readers did not have. We, we've already noted this morning that the people themselves, they deserved the justice that they wanted so badly to come on the people around them. They had been consistently unfaithful to God and they deserved His eternal wrath for it. Now, they're not special in that. We are in the same boat. All people are in that boat, according to Romans 3, verses 10 and following. There's no one righteous before God. Nobody has done any good before God. And so John came before Christ, preaching, Repent of all your sin, for there's a new king coming, and you need to follow him. Now, when Jesus came, justice came with him, in the sense that it came upon him on behalf of the believer. So, so our, our, our second point here, our main point, which I've already given you, is that God's justice is coming. The first sub-point under that is that it comes upon Christ on behalf of the believer. It comes upon Christ on behalf of the believer. When Jesus died on the cross, he suffered in the place of all those who would repent and trust in him. And he was raised three days later, proving that his death was sufficient to give those people life. So he he absorbed all God's wrath on behalf of those believers. Now notice the language in verse 1 there. I'm sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Think, Think about that. God the Son is intended here. These people have been brazenly questioning the justice of God. Where is the God of justice? And here God the Son says, Oh, don't worry, justice is coming. You are so concerned about, about the justice that others deserve, but the justice that you deserve is coming, and I am coming as well to take it for you. And I'll step back for a moment and think about the injustice that came to mind at the beginning of the message when i began to think of to to talk about political things or personal injustices what comes to your mind when you think about how justice is being denied around you or how justice is being denied to you what comes to mind when you're tempted to think that god has denied you justice think about the gospel and the sense in which he has Definitely and graciously denied you justice by giving it to Christ instead. You you and I earned justice under God's wrath due to our sustained rebellion against Him. He poured it out on Jesus. He didn't give it to us. I mean, we we decry unfairness all the time. But listen to this. Grace is unfairness in its most beautiful form. We have been denied justice and praise God for that. The gospel should move us to worship in light of that. We we are saved from the wrath of God by the suffering of the Son of God on the cross. Now, does that mean that we've been denied justice in every sense? Well, Malachi would say, no, we have not been denied justice in every sense. Look at verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will set as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years." The coming of Jesus brought salvation to those who repent and believe. But listen to this. It also brought trouble to those who repent and believe. Here's a a scripture reference worth writing down. Acts 14.22. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we would rightly not understand those tribulations to be God's wrath upon the believer, but his benevolent refining. Malachi says he's, he's like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap, testing by heat and water. The refining that he mentions here takes place throughout the church age, and it ramps up in the days preceding the second coming. By the trials of the Christian life, the Lord is refining and purifying us as believers. Most of us, perhaps, have, have, have never seen silver refined. Maybe you know how it works. I'm going to guess that not everybody does, so I'll explain it very quickly. When a refiner refines silver, he simply turns up the heat progressively so that impurities rise to the top and sit on the top of the silver, and he skims it off, and then turns up the heat again, and more impurities rise to the top, and he skims it off, and he continues that process Until the silver is so pure that he's able to see his own reflection in the metal. That's what God the Holy Spirit is doing in us. He's making us into the image of Christ through difficulty, testing our faith, making us stronger, turning up the heat, removing those parts of us that don't look like Jesus. And here Malachi mentions the sons of Levi, the priests. He says that he will purify the sons of Levi. Peter in the New Testament says to the Gentile church, hey, he's talking about you there. Listen, listen to 1 Peter 2.5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter says, you, church, you are the priesthood. You are offering sacrifices to God. Now, I've mentioned it several times before, but I, don't, I want to make sure that we don't miss it. The offerings that we bring to God, they are not like the offerings of the, the priesthood of the Old Testament. They're not, they're not animal sacrifices, but remember what Paul teaches in Romans 12.1. This is Romans 12.1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is your spiritual worship. And then the apostle gives a list of moral imperatives. He teaches us how to live. And what he's teaching is that our godly lives are the sacrifices that Peter teaches about and Malachi teaches about. So as as the Lord is refining us, as he's making us more like him, our godly lives are lived for his glory and those are our offerings of worship to Him. Verse 4 says, Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. And we might wonder, "Well, Does this, does this indicate that we're earning God's favor by our offerings then? Well, the, off, the, the answer is no. Not in any sense. But rather, referring to this same idea, Peter says, These offerings are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. They're acceptable to Him not because we are holy, but because we are in Christ. And and He's pleased by them, not because we have manufactured something for God, but in the sense we are are bringing our lives before God and and saying, Father, look at what You have wrought in us. As, As Paul writes in Ephesians 2, we are His workmanship. All of this is for His glory. Now, of an obvious question is, how does this, the refining of our lives for His glory, how does that count as God's justice? Well, it just does. The Bible uses the word justice and judgment to refer to the refining of the believer's life. It does that in 1 Peter also. 1 Peter chapter 4. If you're taking notes, you might write down 1 Peter 4.12 where the apostle says this or writes this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if something strange is happening to you. Of course in that context he's talking about the the suffering of persecution that comes in some measure upon everyone who lives for him. Now it's in that context and referring to that reality that he writes this in verse 17. 1st Peter 4:17 For it is time for judgment to come upon the household of God. He's referring to that suffering of this life that comes upon the believer to refine them as judgment beginning at the household of God. Household of God refers to what? It refers to the church. It's also borrowing language from the the Old Testament temple. In in this sense of refining, God's judgment starts in his own house, and that's exactly what we find in Malachi chapter 3. Where does the Lord come to bring his justice or refining first? Verse 1 says, to his temple. The refining starts in his temple. That's, that's, that's the way that the Bible talks about judgment at times. It's God's refining fire that comes upon the church. We find it in First Peter, we find it in Malachi, we find it in other places. So, speaking big picture, God's justice, it comes upon Christ on behalf of the believer. Christ absorbs God's wrath for us, but it also comes upon the believer in Christ's refining that's the second subpoint in your in your notes it comes upon the believer in Christ's refining now here's a a precious thing we noted earlier that it is shameless to worship God while questioning his justice the gospel helps us to bring shameless worship in a completely different sense wonderful sense when we realize how the justice of God has visited us, that is, that it has come upon Christ on our behalf and and removed our guilt, and that now by grace He's refining us with great kindness into the image of Christ so that our very lives are a fragrant aroma to Him, then we worship Him freely and joyfully with no shame. We worship Him we, we we don't come to Him saying, God, look at, here at this thing that I've done for you imperfectly, but rather we come to Him saying, God, look at what you've done perfectly in Christ. It's a Wonderful thing. I mentioned earlier that God's justice comes upon everyone, comes upon everyone. The justice that comes upon Christ only covers the believer. That leaves a large number of people uncovered. And they are referred to in verse 5. Look at Malachi 3 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So the third. Sub-point is that God's justice comes upon the unbeliever in justice and judgment. It comes upon the unbeliever in judgment. Malachi gives us a list of categories of sinners here which are summed up in that catch-all umbrella phrase, and do not fear me, which is, which is a key phrase in Malachi, taking us back to the first passage. Malachi majors on this idea of fearing the Lord, revering Him, honoring Him. He's teaching us that it it, it is not those who merely bring outward ritual sacrifices who will avoid the wrath of God which is to come, but rather it's those who demonstrate true godly fear by repenting and trusting in Christ. That is, it's those who truly worship God. Now these verses should trouble those who don't know the Lord, but they should do two things for those who do know the Lord. Verse 5 should do two things for those who do know the Lord. First of all, it should motivate us to faithful evangelism. When we think about the judgment of God visiting evildoers, it should move us to faithful evangelism. Those of us who have followed the Lord Jesus Christ, we've done, done so in some measure because we realized that the wrath of God was coming for us if we did not surrender to Him, right? Well, listen, there are people all around us every day who are still under that wrath, And if we have any semblance of compassion, we should move, be moved to share with them, remembering the reality of verse 4, which says, Who can stand the day of His coming? Who who will be able to endure this? The implied answer is no one. So we should be moved to to tell everyone as quickly as possible. That's the first thing that verse 5 should move us to do, that is, to, to be faithful in evangelism. But secondly... It should move us to trust. When we see injustices in the world, we should trust that though it seems as if injustice in this life, that that, that justice in this life seems elusive, it will come. When it seems like justice in this life is elusive, it will come. Evildoers will not escape the hand of God. You can bank on that. there, There are numerous psalms that Praise God for His coming judgment. I'll give you one, just one example, Psalm 98. Now Psalm 98 sounds just like a typical Psalm of praise. I, the, the first verse begins this way. Oh, sing to the Lord, for He has done marvelous things. There's a bunch more stuff like that right after it. Then it concludes with this. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together for the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. What's the reason for all this praise? Because God is coming as a judge. (coughs) So it's appropriate for us to praise God for coming judgment. Only the gospel can transform us so that we see God rightly, we're saved from His judgment, and we celebrate it. Our worship should not question God's judgment justice, but rather celebrate it. And that brings us to one of the greatest verses in the Minor Prophets, which is verse 6, which teaches us that God's character ensures this future. That's the last point on your notes. God's character ensures this future. (coughs) Verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob... Are not consumed. For I, the Lord, do not change. There's a theological label that we put on that truth. We call it immutability. God is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises. And that has everything to do with the second half of verse 6. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. (coughs) The story of the Old Testament and the Bible as a whole is that God has purposed from eternity past to bring salvation and to do it through a particular people, the descendants of Abraham. He made a string of promises to that effect beginning in Genesis chapter 3. He promises to bring a a seed through the line of Eve. He reiterates it in Genesis chapter 12. Saying, "I'm, I'm going to do this through a particular man, Abram. Genesis 15, I'm going to do it not merely through a relative of Abram, but I'm going to do it through his own son. Genesis 16, I'm going to do it through Isaac, not Ishmael. Genesis 25, I'm going to do it through Jacob, not Esau. And with each of those episodes, God was reiterating, look, the promise still stands. I have made a promise and salvation will come. And with each passing generation, in, in large ways and in small, God shows himself to be faithful, faithful, faithful. That Exodus generation, <clears throat> they did everything they could to get themselves sent back to Egypt. And God wouldn't do it. Because he'd made a promise. He was going to keep it. Look at verse 6 again. <coughs> There's an important word at the beginning of that sentence. It's the word for, which attaches it logically to what came before it. God, God would send his messenger ahead of the Son of God of the Son of God. The Son of God would come to his temple and bring in a new covenant in his own blood. He would endure the justice of God on behalf of the elect. God would refine the elect and purify them so that they would bring offerings to him acceptable through Christ. God would bring judgment upon the wicked in the form of final judgment. Now, why is all of that a certainty? Verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. God makes promises and he keeps them. And the significance of the last part of verse 6, which says, Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The significance of that part of the verse is this. God is saying, Even you provoking me by your absurd questioning of my justice will not prevent me from fulfilling my promise to save you. I have the power to annihilate you, but I won't because I cannot deny myself. Second Timothy 2.13 God doesn't change, so whom he's chosen to save will be saved, and those whom he has chosen to judge will be judged. And he will do it on his own timetable, and he will ask no one for permission to do it that way. But you and I can bank on the fact that even though we may not see justice the way that we anticipate it, we can know that it it will be a reality because God is God, and he does not change. I began this morning with Psalm 73 and a Holy Spirit-inspired author wrestling with these things. I want to close with a few verses from that same psalm as that author turns in his heart toward a place of faith. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until... I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I might tell of all your works. In this life we will have trouble, but God's justice is real. In in a glorious sense, it has been denied to us. It was was given to Christ instead. In another sense, it comes to us to refine us into His image. It comes finally to bring recompense to all the wicked. All these things should cause us to worship Him, and to not doubt that God is a God of justice, I'm going to I'm going to pray now, and we'll enjoy a moment of brief silent reflection before we close with a song. So let's pray. Father, we praise you for your tremendous patience with us, how it has been demonstrated from the beginning of creation, how it is demonstrated even now as we think wrongly about you, and we confess that to you this morning, how we, much like the people of Judah, we bring worship to you while thinking wrongly of you questioning your justice in various ways. We confess it to you. We ask for your forgiveness and pray that you would help us to think rightly, to remember again that the gospel shows us how graciously you have denied us fairness. You've poured out your justice on Christ on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, for your refining fire that comes upon us, that does the does us the kindness of making us like him, which is so pleasurable. It is pleasurable to be like Jesus. We thank you for that. We pray, Father, that even as it seems that injustice abounds around us, we know that we can trust that because you do not change, justice will come in light of that fact Lord, help us to be motivated to tell all those around us that very thing, that your justice is coming and that the only hope to escape it is the blood of Jesus Christ. Help us to trust you in all these things and walk in faithfulness. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.